We will read from the writings of the psalmist, Psalm chapter 139. David, most of these psalms that he wrote, approximately writing 72 of them, in many instances, was at the lowest points of his life. But the poetry flowed from the pen of a man who was broken-hearted in despair and feeling destitute. Amen. Psalm 139, beginning reading at verse number one, and we will read two segments from this one particular chapter. Verse 1, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from Thy Spirit, or whither shall I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Skipping on down to verse number 13. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. There was so much to be extrapolated from this heavily, heavily pregnant text that is rich and replete with spiritual truths. You may be seated this morning. When I think of God and the guiding factor, the governing factor of His providential purposes, and what He has for all of us, for each one of us in the form of a destiny, in the form of a life, in the form of a future. It is evident that none of us are here by happenstance, that none of us are here appearing merely out of the ether for no apparent purpose. But there is a definitive reason, and there is a definitive cause, and there is a why to our human existence that's not merely existential, but there has to be something more than what even life itself presents to us in the form of trouble, in the form of pain, in the form of discombobulation and confusion while we struggle amid our old human limitations trying to lock into something that lifts us and levitates us and brings us to a higher place, a higher plateau of living where we see with more clarity 
where we see with greater view and vision and as as if the proverbial cobwebs are removed from our eyes and we're finally able for the first time in our life to know why we're here and what God's definitive plan and purpose for us is. Many of us are like the man that Jesus took when he wanted to perform a miracle of healing for blinded eyes, took him away from the crowd, took him away from that koinonia of company outside the city limits where it was just Jesus and the man. In many other instances, Jesus would heal blinded eyes in the presence of others not fearing the principle of prejudice or bias for the purpose of the motive of the miracle. But Jesus understood that he needed to take this man to an isolated place and deal with him one-on-one -on -one and deal with him face-to-face. -face. And so he touched his eyes. He said, what do you see? He said, I see men as trees walking. There was not clarity with the first time touch. There was not the desired result that the master wanted with the first touch. It's because God sometimes does things in successive progressive stages that are contrary to the, to the idealism of immediacy that we as human beings have in the constitution of our intellect. But Jesus saw the need to touch the man a second time and when the master's hand touched this blind man's eye sockets the second time he said I see everything clearly I don't know where you are today I don't know how you feel today but it seems that I've had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with him that he has taken me aside away from the noise and the chatter of the crowd because he wants to minister a touch to me because he wants to minister a definitive purpose to me and I don't see everything clearly right now in fact I see men as trees walking but I am of the persuasion this morning that if the master will touch me a second time if there will be the administration of another touch that it's going to bring understanding and it's going to bring realization and it's going to bring clarity to some matters and then we're going to know why we had to go through the long, enduring, painful, arduous trial that we endured and went through. There has to be a purpose for it. And there has to be a purpose for us. Or else life, in the words of the Sol Solomon, the wise man, is absolutely meaningless. The Apostle Paul, in his masterful penmanship, a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament wrote with such, such proficient, eloquent, meticulous rhetoric in the way that he would establish and formulate arguments in, in, in a way to refute all those that would in any wise, whether philosophers or not, rebuttal his argument. He wrote in that spirit life chapter after he talks about in Romans 7 the incessant struggle that man deals with in the proclivities of his flesh and the things that he constantly battles and bumps up against and never can seem to get over or overcome. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul dealt with this old, rotty, decaying corpse of the flesh every day of his life. No matter how much he strove to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, he still contended with the raging warfare of a humanity that constantly battled against God's purpose for his life. When he uses that metaphorical language of the body of death, 
He is referring to an ancient practice. The Romans had hideous, sinister ways in which they would execute criminals. Of course, one of those methodologies was by crucifix. How Jesus Christ was crucified. Another way that they would execute criminals perhaps was even more wickedly sinister. When a man committed homicide, when he killed another man, they would literally take the dead corpse of the man that the living man had killed. And they would tie that dead corpse to the back of the living man. They would tie arm to arm, leg to leg, torso to torso. Amen. Until that living man would have to carry the weight of that dead man on his back every day of his life. Everywhere he went, it was a constant reminder of the Christ crime he committed and it was so heinous because finally the rotting decaying flesh of the dead man would literally begin to rot and decay and putrefy and eat away at the flesh of the living man living man until both both were dead. I'm here to tell you today, this flesh, this old Adamic nature that we deal with, if we're not careful, the thing that we've got to deal with and carry with us every day, if we don't continually seek to walk in the power of the, of the last Adam, of the quickening spirit of the last Adam, if we are not renewed day by day in the spirit of our mind, the old man will come back to destroy and the old man will come back to eat away at God's divine purpose for us until there's nothing left until there's nothing that remains of beauty and of pristine and of purpose to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose but there is an evident, clear differentiation between the statement of time and purpose. There's a season and a time for purpose. But if I'm so mesmerized by lesser loves, if I'm so given to things... If I'm so given to things that are not meaningful to the purpose, that when it comes time for me to enter into the season in which the time for the purpose can and should be fulfilled, I'll never know my purpose. I'll never discover the reason why God put me on this planet and planted me here because I was destroyed too distracted to know when it was time to enter my season. But today I am pragmatic. I want to occupy until he comes. In other words, I'm going to hold my position and I'm going to prepare my mind and I'm going to prepare myself because when it comes time for my season, for the time of my purpose, I want to be ready. I want to be pragmatic. I want to be Stepping in the steps that are ordered of the Lord. I want to be postured. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. But the real, the real secret to dwelling in the secret place is posturing yourself and when you posture yourself in prayer and you prepare your heart by seeking the face of God I'm not just here for a temporary stay but I'm going to dwell in the secret place this is where I'm going to live and this is where I'm going to die and this is where my destiny is going to come to pass As long as I'm under the shade of the umbrella of his shadow. As in another reference, David said, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. But he's not only with me, 
but under the cover of his wings he is covering me it's one thing for somebody to be with you but it's another thing when somebody's got your back when somebody's very shadow and presence is covering you. There is no devil in hell that can breach that shadow of his covering. There is no person that can violate the shadow of his covering. By the ages of his divine sanctioned protection, we are all shielded. For he is our buckler and our shield. Amen. That's right. I said he is our shield. In other words, when we go to spiritual warfare, everybody says, won't you just trump it up? Why don't you just leapfrog to Ephesians 6 and say, take the shield of faith. Amen. But I would rather have God as my shield than a meager shield of faith. Amen. I want God to go before me. I want God to be the protector. I want God to inculcate me because we're living in danger dangerous times when men are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God when devils are hatching out of hell to destroy the remnant of the apostolic church but when God goes before as the mighty man of war that he is with a shield he is fighting for the church he is fighting for the right he is fighting for the cause he is fighting for our lives. He is fighting for the purpose. Hallelujah. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Amen. I may tergiversate here today and not even get to the intricacies of my text, but I'm just going to speak some Bible today. Amen. The predestination of God. In the Greek, it means to mark out the boundaries. God, in his eternal counsel, he counsels with himself. And in that counseling session, he designates a purpose. For a human life. And then he begins to harpazizo, it's the Greek word, to mark out the boundaries of that human life. In other words, some people will go so far and no further within the contextualization of their purpose because that's what God, God has designed. Others may go farther. The boundary may stretch and reach farther for them because that's what God has designed. Oh, not everybody has it like Paul had it. Not everybody has all the spiritual proficiencies. Amen. But I just want to be what he wants me to be. The only thing is I want to be prepared for my season and my time to enter my purpose. It's been predestinated by the counsel of his foreknowledge. That's why you can't cookie cut somebody else to be like somebody else. You cannot massage and manipulate the clay of somebody else's human constitution when that clay is not in your hands. That clay is in the hands of the potter. And that's one of the problems today with apostolic ministry in general. Men are trying to form the clay of an up-and-coming generation when it's not even their prerogative to have their hands on the clay, to mold the clay. That prerogative belongs to God and God alone. He is the one that has made us and not we ourselves. We are the sheep of his pasture and the people of his hand. Oh, yeah. When man 
when man inf when a man in interferes and infringes and puts his filthy fingers on the clay that's why hearts are scarred and ministries are marred and lives are broken but when the master potter puts his hands on the clay he makes a beautiful face he makes something lovely he makes something purposeful with destiny and direction Oh Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. This is how David, in the most beautiful expression, poetically, in the undertone of his verbiage and language, opens Psalm 139 with the understanding in this contextualization that God has searched me and God has known me and the Hebrew word for searched is haka. It means to seek and that Hebrew word for known in its past participial form is yarda, yarda. It means to know relationally. God is seeking us like he sought David. Amen. Because he wants to know us relationally. That there would be an intimate relationship that comes out of the search. And David repeat, repeats constantly that term in these frames, in this frame, in these passages. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. David understood one thing about God. He knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows my words. He knows my thoughts. Thoughts. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I rise. Nothing can escape the knowledge of God. Nothing can get past the knowledge of God. And the only reason it's not because God knows me that he's trying to find out something bad about me. But he knows me because he wants to love me. And he wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to share an intimacy with me. Thou understandest my thoughts far off, even though this context is, is discussing exegetically the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. And yet David uses dichotomous language of a far off, of a far off. Thou knowest my thoughts of a far off, but thou art always near. You're always here. God is always here. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. And now we move from Hakar to Yarda to Zara. The Hebrew word for compassed is Zara. It means to measure the motive. Amen. Amen. God, Hakar, He Yada, He seeks. Because he's looking for a relationship. But before there can be the establishment of a relationship, he must zara, he must measure the motive. He wants to know what makes us tick. He wants to know where a heart really is. He wants to know the fervor, the level of fervor and compassion that we have within ourselves, within the vis visceral aspect of our human entity. He wants to know, amen, he wants that gut check. He wants to find out what we're really all about. He wants to know. He seeks a relationship that he's going to measure motive. And then John the Revelator, when he writes the apocalypse on the Isle called Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ, he says, and I saw the altar of incense. 
He said, I did not see the brazen altar. The reason why the brazen altar is not mentioned in the book of Revelation because the sacrificial lamb had already been offered from the foundation of the world. And what was established in Moses' tabernacle as a brazen altar for sacrifice was fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross. But John said, when I cast my eyes heavenward, I saw the altar of incense with incense of the prayers of the saints ascending up into even the highest heavens and then he said and he said I caused every man to appear before the altar and I measured them God measured man at the altar of prayer because he wanted to know where their heart was and even what their motive for prayer was in this hour of great fear and trepidation of tremendous uncertainty God is seeking for a relationship to measure the motive of human ambition and desire and then of course we know in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that the prophet Samuel was going among the eight, what appeared to him to be the seven sons of one by the one, one by the name of Jesse, to find a king to anoint a man to take the place of Saul, who had so disgraced the throne. And then, as the prophet takes his horn of oil and he moves amid amongst the sons of Jesse, seeing those that are of great stature, he said, this is not the one. That is not the one. And then he turns to Jesse. He said, do you have a son yet? He said, yes, I have one more son who's in the field tending to sheep. The eighth son, bring him. The prophet Samuel said, unto me that I may anoint him, for he has chosen the law of the Lord. It is amazing to me that Jesse kept David a secret because in Jesse's mind, David was never really his flesh and blood son that he was an illegitimate child that Jesse's wife had been unfaithful to him and conceived and birthed David and that's why David said in Psalm 51 I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity because he always felt as if his father thought he was not his just an afterthought just a child that was the product of sin and yet God said that is the one I'm going to pour the horn of my anointing upon I am Haka I am seeking and searching because I want to Yada and I when I do Zarah among the seven sons of Jesse I measure the motive and I finally find the one in the eighth son how many of us are number eight when everybody else marked us off and everybody else said we would never amount to anything, you were number eight in your family. For God said of the solitary in families, he brings out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in the dry land. God always chooses one person out of a family. Amen. When God said of the two sons, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, there's always a child in the family that disgraces the family's name and disgraces the heritage but there's also another one that is the solitary like David was that God found that God said this man though he's not perfect he's going to reciprocate love to me I measured him and I see in him the heart of the king I see in him a heart that's after my heart that wants what I want loves what I love that I love hallelujah David goes on to say for there is not a word in my tongue but O Lord thou knowest it altogether and how we see this language of knowingness thou hast searched me and known me thou knowest my down city my uprising thou knowest it altogether such knowledge is too wonderful for me 
He said, it's just so mind-blowing that God knows every intricate detail about my life. I cannot escape the all-knowingness of the Almighty when it comes. There's, I cannot sin in secret now because He knows when I sin in secret. And that's why David said, let, let the secret sin of my life be revealed. And that's why the prophet Nathan came and said, Thou art the man because God knew everything about He knew him when he was a young lad on the battlefield going to fight a giant with a sling and a stone. He said, I know him. I know that's always been in him, the characteristics and the traits to be a giant killer. It's always been in him. And yet the same God said, I know know him in the weakness in the proclivity of his flesh in a time when kings went forth to battle David stayed in the palace he thought he could just relax and repose because he was no longer culpable and just send out his under ministers to do the task I'm here to tell you today there is no discharge from this war amen when you sign up to be a part of the kingdom of God the devil is always watching and whenever you back up whenever you become lax that's when he will attack and so David stayed home in the palace he was so comfortable in his his kingship comfortable in his well-fared position then no longer saw the need to go to war but God knew him and knew his thoughts and knew the intent of his heart. David could never escape the knowledge of God. Amen. Amen. And then he says something in verse 5 that is powerful. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. How many here today want God to lay his hand his omnipotent hand upon you. David's been addressing by the penmanship of his writing the omniscience of God, the inescapability of the omnipresence of God. But now he starts relating to his readers, his Hebraic readers, that this this hand, this, then he says it's called the right hand of power, this omnipotent hand to be laid upon his life. And the word beset there is the Hebrew idiom, surer. It means trapped, but not trapped in the sense as if besieged by an enemy or taken as a prisoner of war and shackled and not released. But uh, beset or surer means trapped in order to protect. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. God has a plan and a purpose for all of us today. And he has the knowledge that spans the boundary of our individualized purpose which he has predestinated for us in the councils of eternity but sometimes he besets us behind and before he entraps us because he really wants to protect us because he knows if we get ahead of his timing that we will self-destruct to everything there is a season and a time for the purpose but if we get out of seat with the season and the time will miss the purpose but sometimes God traps us because he wants to protect us and that may include many things he may allow affliction to come in order to trap us because he wants to protect us from violating his purpose because if we get ahead of his of his timing, we will violate the structure of the purpose and we will completely annihilate and obliterate through our human amen stupidity everything that God had planned for us. Amen. God's not here to hurt us. He's not here to harm us. He's not here to destroy us, but he loves us. And because he loves us, he wants to protect us. From from messing up our future. He wants to protect us from messing up his destiny that he's planned for our lives. Praise the Lord. Trapped. 
in order to protect. But while I'm trapped, David said, he's laid his hand upon me. Amen. You see, you'll never know the timing of God until you're trapped. See, everybody wants to know the timing of God, but they don't want to have any restraints within predestination boundaries. Again, predestination means to set boundaries, and it correlates with this idiom to trap. You'll never know the timing until you've been trapped. In other words, God's going to allow something to happen in our lives that's going to make us feel as if we're going off the edge. He's going to allow hell to bombard us until we feel so much discomfort, until we feel so much pain, until we feel so much turmoil. We're not going to know what to do. We're not going to know how to turn. But when we feel trapped, God knows this much. We're going to look to Him. We're going to turn to Him. Then we'll pray. Then we'll seek His face. Then we'll turn from our wicked ways and see our lives come together and see the land healed as well. I'm trapped. But it's for a cause because he wants to reveal his timing to me within what appears to be my prison. Amen. But really this prison is my protection. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. I said this prison, prison is mine and your protection. Amen. So that we do not get ahead of the purpose. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. And violate that stricture. And infringe upon that. Because that is a tender thing. The purpose of God is easily grieved and hurt and broken. Just ask Saul that when he grieved the purpose of God by sacrificing prematurely and not waiting on the prophetic ministry, he completely cut himself off from maintaining the pastoral position of king in the throne and the anointing that accompanied kingship. He knows me. He has searched me. He understands everything about me. And that's why he's trapped me. To protect me. But while I'm here, his hand, that heavy hand, that mighty hand, that all-powerful hand, you cannot do anything good or bad against a man or a woman upon whom the hand of God rests. You can talk about them. You can say snide remarks. You can ridicule them from a distance. But the reason why you ridicule them is because you don't recognize or understand them because they're on a different level of revelation. But you can't do anything with them when the hand of God is on them. But if the hand of God lifts off a life, the devil can do whatever he wants with that life. But I'm here to tell the devil today, as long as the hand of God is on me, while I'm trapped and being protected, you can't touch me. You can't destroy me. You cannot have your way with me. I am the product of God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, O Lord. David said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? In another reference, he said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. It's not even my salvation. You understand? He said, It's thy salvation. Because it wasn't my sacrifice. It was his sacrifice. If it's his sacrifice, then it's his salvation. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, don't ever let your spirit depart. I never want to be in the plight of a Samson. Amen. When I violate that Nazarenean vow. Amen. And put myself in a position where I'm left to my own human devices. And whatever the devil can do, he can do to me. Amen. Whither shall I go from my spirit? I can't escape it. God fill 
knows all time and space. He's everywhere at one time and never absent. Amen. In the bar or at the church, at the honky tonk or on Skid Row, His Spirit is there. You cannot escape that hand. You cannot escape that touch. And that's why people that have been exposed to truth and backslide, they live restless and miserable and they can't sleep at night and they can't function because once you've tasted of the heavenly gift and you've been made a partaker of the Holy Ghost to turn away, it is misery at best. You cannot escape His presence. You cannot escape His call. You cannot escape His Or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If, now David shifts to a, what in English grammar is a conditional adverb. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. We know that within the, the construct of the omnipresence of God, if you're going to find him anywhere, you're going to find him in heaven. Oh, he's there. His presence in its purest, holiest, rawest form. And Isaiah was captured by the effigence and the abulence of the holiness of the high and lifted one whose train filled the temple. That train that filled that was during that ancient time. Whenever a king would go to battle against another army and its king, if that king would conquer the other king, he would always strip him of his robe. He would strip him of his train. And that train would, be, would become a part of the, vic, of the victor's train, of the conqueror's train. In other words, amen, God's train was so vast. There had never been an enemy that he had never, that he had never defeated. That in fact, it filled the temple. And that is what mesmerized Isaiah. He said he's holy, holy, holy is the whole the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if I should ascend up into heaven, I would behold him. And I would be beholden of him. For we shall see him as he is in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And I cannot wait for that day when the trumpet sounds. And this mortal puts on immortality. And baseness puts on own power and we shall be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye I plan on ascending there one day if I ascend that is if somehow some superhuman superman force would levitate David he said you know if I could just get a little bit higher a little bit higher, maybe I could touch him a little more intimately. Because I know, I know he's there. Hallelujah. But if I make my bed in hell, yes. here's the crux. If I make my bed in hell, even there, he is. Jesus, to see that ascended, descended first into the lowest parts of the earth. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. One thing he did, he only stayed there for three days. Jesus did not make his bed in hell, but he just passed through it. Amen. But if David said, for all that he knows about me, and for all the intimacy that we've shared, and all the nights that we've danced together under the sway of the moonlight, and there has been this intimate, deep relationship on a spiritual dimension that me and God have shared, he said, for all all of the aspiration for all of the heart playing as my fingers have danced across the chords calling out the quiet quaint nuances for 
all the love, for all the beauty, for all the glory. He said, if I make my bed in hell, he said he is so omnipresent that he's going to know I'm there. And the worst part about it is I'm going to know I'm there too because in hell the worm does not die. Amen. The rich man remembered in hell all the good things he had in this life. He said, would you just send Lazarus dip his finger in water and cool my tongue? For I am tormented in this flame. I don't know about you. The aspiration is to ascend to heaven. But if somehow we don't get our motives right, and if I don't get my heart set like it should, even though he's trapped me because he's lo he loves me, but if I am recalcitrant against that love and resist that mercy and resist this, that grace, if I make my bed in hell, it won't be God's fault. If I make my bed in hell, it won't be because he didn't love me. If I make my bed in hell, it won't be because he did not try to lead me and guide me with his hand. It'll be my own personal decision of volition. Hallelujah. And now David... He starts talking about how God curiously wrought him in his mother's womb as the fingers of God took the thread of human flesh, that embryo, and began to fashion it and shaping it. Just like he told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And David sees here how God was so expertly and ardently crafting the substance of the tissue of bone and marrow and embryonic flesh in his mother's womb because God knew something about David. This knowledge preceded his conception, but this knowledge was constantly a working mechanism that God had in his mind for David as David was being fashioned in the womb because God knew what David's calling and purpose was for his life. And yet all the while, amen, that as human nature was running its course and as the seed, amen, as the seed hit the egg and David began to be formed in the first and the second and third trimester. The Bible says, yet being imperfect in God's book, all David's members were being written. Not only was God writing David's per se individualized members of his human entity, but I believe that God was writing down everything that David was going to do and everything that David was going to be. God was writing down he's going to be a giant slayer. God was writing down he's going to be a man as king who sits on the throne. He's also going to make his mistake with Bathsheba. I know he's not perfect and yet it, to me it's amazing in the contrast that David compares if I may my bed in hell to God writing everything in his life down in the book. What is the book? It's the book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. I want my name to be written down. But the only way that God will erase my name from the book is if I make my bed in hell. He has no other recourse but to blot out my name and remove me. From the presence of his glory. Jesus. Jesus. We got the contrast of the bed in the book. Your name's in the book. You know you got a place in heaven secured. Your name's not in the book. You know it's not God that made you go to hell, but it was you that made your bed. The old proverbial saying is, if you make your bed, you got to lie in it. We all got choices to make in this life. This life is a series of choices. It is a long, endless string of decisions. 
Amen. I give you the decision. Choose life or choose death, Moses said. We've got that choice today. We have a level of human autonomy. We could choose to live for God. We could choose to be thankful even when we feel pain. We could choose to lift hands, holy hands, even when our hearts are heavy. We could choose to walk on with Him. We could choose to embrace His purpose despite the pain. Or we could choose to make one incremental decision after another that's going to land us in hell. That we're making our bed in hell because we don't understand. And the first thing that causes a man to make his bed in hell is bitterness. Bitterness is the blanket of the bed you will eventually make in hell if you don't get your act together. If we don't get it right. If we don't get it all together. If we don't somehow summon up our spiritual man and tell the old man you're staying crucified. The flesh's destiny has got to be a cross. The spirit's destiny has got a purpose. But unless the flesh is on its cross fulfilling its destiny, the spirit man's never going to be able to feel the, fulfill the purpose of the future. That's good. That's the truth. He has jotted down everything when it was just an embryo. In an imperfect state, having not yet breathed the first breath of this life, he knew him, oh, he knew him so well. He knew him so well. Fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't matter how much or how fearfully or wonderfully made any one of us is. Nor does it matter how much to what extent God has written down in the book of our life about all the masterful accomplishments and feats we will do and the person and purpose that we would become. It all is void and in vain. This making process from the womb to the man, from the womb to the woman, from the first day of birth to the last day of death is pointless and fruitless if there is a spirit of bitterness that gets in the heart of any one of us. That's right. Because once bitterness starts, it soils, it perforates. So many don't realize that the more bitter they become, all the while they're bitter, they're making their bed. That's the truth. And Not God to blame because none of it has ever been God's fault. Human decision is not God's fault. God is only obligated to His purpose. Amen. He's not obligated to correct our decisions all the time. That's good. I want my name to be on the book of life today. Oh, yes, Lord. The Lamb's book of life. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But if I don't get it all together. Oh, my God. Could it be, could it be, that I'm making a better now? Let's lift our hands to the Lord today. Jesus Christ, we need you.